So good afternoon. I'm constitutional attorney Catherine Henry, and this is uh, Restore Freedom Weekly, and it is episode number 14. Okay, good. So we are good to go on both uh, YouTube and Facebook, and uh, hopefully Lori is able to see if we're uh, still good to go on our Rumble channel as well. Um, uh, today we're going to have a very well, I like to think all of our topics are very timely in nature, but this one uh, is a, uh, especially timely considering uh, some recent things that have been happening. And um, so I'm just going to kind of back it up a minute and uh, um, say uh, um, that we, um, before I get into the details of that, we have a little bit different setup than we have in weeks past. Last week, we implemented this new format a little bit, which is not that we're so much cutting out different segments that we've been including in our prior shows, but that we're just moving those over to the other days of the week. So for example, you will have a Wednesday way to get involved challenge that will be shared with you tomorrow. Uh, there will still be a Thursday, Thursday constitution segment recap uh, which won't provide anything new from today, but will help you uh, so you don't have to necessarily take notes today. You can just sit and listen. Um, Friday, we will have our um, Freedom Fighting Tools available to you. Uh, Saturday is our highlighting of the uh, Restore Freedom goodie of the week. This week's a little unusual in that regard, too. And of course, Sunday, we'll end out our week with uh, the biblical insight for this particular topic. But we're not going to go over all those segments in today's episode in an effort to keep it short, especially since this is so jam-packed with information and we really need to get started. Um, hello to all of you that are commenting on uh, YouTube and Facebook and uh, Rumble. Uh, thank you for joining us today. So uh, what I would like to do now that all the technical difficulties got me a little frazzled, I need to... Uh, oh, shoot. Okay. Um, I had a whole bunch of stuff all set up and ready to go, and um, it, uh, let's see here, it unshared everything I had already for you guys, so, okay, let's see, all right, um, we will, um, this does not work the same in uh, um, the other browser is uh, the one I normally use. So I apologize for that. Oh yeah, it's changing things before I was ready for that. So that's awesome. Okay guys, uh, again, sorry for the uh, lack of smoothness today as we go forward, but I promise you this is information that you need to know. And I will tell you at the onset, cause I know a lot of you uh, follow uh, the work that I do. You're from states outside of Michigan, uh, possibly even other countries. This is still going to be very important because even if you're in a state um, that's not Michigan, your state constitution is going to have some of the very same types of provisions that we're going to talk about today. And um, certainly, uh, for example, I know for a fact that Florida's state constitution does, and we'll be talking about some of those uh, specifically. But the main concepts and what we saw with different um, governor executive orders or your health department's issuing orders and that kind of thing, those concepts are going to be the same throughout. You might just have to do your own research to kind of dig deep and see where um you know, which specific parts of your state constitution would apply, but I guarantee you the analysis talked about today 
the overall map of, of what's happening and, and possibly um, what will happen, that those are things that would be useful to you even if you live outside of Michigan. So I uh, just wanted to start by telling you guys that. So today, um, what I'm going to do is, uh, number one, walk you through what the main cases involved uh, are. And you know what? I just realized I don't think I actually said what the topic really is. I mean, of course, it's in the description. But today, we're going to talk about the 1945 EPGA, Emergency Power of Governor Act, uh, in the state of Michigan, of course and the 1976 EMA Emergency Management Act and the 1976 Public Health Code. Uh, we're gonna talk about what some of the main court cases, lawsuits have been and uh, you know which ones there are. There, there's, there's lots out there. Uh, if I don't mention one that you know of, it doesn't mean that there's nothing of value in that, uh, but there's three that I think are particularly important that we should focus on. Uh, number two, we're going to highlight some of the main differences, or excuse me, some of the main documents uh, that have been filed in each of those three cases. And I'm going to give you access to those documents so you can see them for yourself in a very uh, easy to find format and you're not scrambling or struggling. Uh, technically, there is a free, um, there's free access to 95% of those documents already online, but it's so convoluted and complicated on how you get there that uh, quite frankly, I have forgotten how I get in there and get those documents. And I'm an attorney um, and I have filed in these very cases and yet I couldn't find where to get uh, some of the copies of the documents I hadn't already downloaded. But anyway, uh, so that's gonna be the big piece, right? Is making sure you guys have access to those. Um, and then we're gonna discuss what's happening now. So you're, you're, there's a reason why we're going over what happened in 2020 uh, in the courts and with the legislature and everything else, because there are things happening right now. In fact, things that happened in the Michigan Supreme Court just this Friday, this last Friday. Uh, it was April Fool's Day, but uh, unfortunately what they did was um, not exactly an April Fool's trick. So I'm not sure if I'm able to figure out this, but I think here we go. Okay, so before we get into the meat of all those topics, though, um, First, we need to talk about the different laws involved. Like I mentioned, this is regarding the 1945 EPGA, the 1976 EMA, and the 1976 Public Health Code. So the EMA and the EPGA, um, they're giving the governor power to issue executive orders to handle emergencies. Uh, the wording on them is, is a little bit different, and I went to go grab the exact wording of the statutes when I realized that um, because the 1945 law has now been repealed, I'd have to do some really deep diving to find what the uh, wording was in effect in 2000, or excuse me, 2020, um, because it's no longer readily available on the uh, state's website right now. So um, at any rate, though, essentially they did the same thing. They gave the governor, in the executive branch, of course, power to issue executive orders to handle emergencies. And in many respects, they were very broad, um, broad powers. In some respects, they went into some details about things that, uh, quite frankly, should be obviously unconstitutional, but uh, we'll talk about that another day. They were not limited to um, emergencies or disasters in um, specifically in regard to any kind of public health uh, issues, but of course that's what she was using. And uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan in 2020 issued, oh my gosh, it might've been over 200. Um, at the time I wrote uh, a brief in August of 2020, 
she had already written 162 executive orders, 153 uh, were all um, about COVID restrictions. And that was just in 2020. I mean, it's insane. Um, so at any rate, um, then you contrast that with the public health code, which is uh, giving MDHHS or the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, which is a, a part of the executive branch under the governor, uh, the power to issue emergency orders, but also EOs to handle public health emergencies, which we'll go over in detail in just a little bit. So again, EMA and EPGA were specifically giving power to issue EOs to the governor uh, in uh, emergencies in general, and the Public Health Code of 1976 was uh, giving the um, MDHHS director and in another spot, the local health departments power to issue emergency orders specifically for public health emergencies. Uh, but then we're going to talk about what the governor's, um, uh, well, we need to now talk about what the governor's emergency orders did. They, oh, let me see here. I had very, um, I don't know, good wording in my, um, okay. In one of the briefs that I submitted to the Michigan Supreme Court, this is the brief I submitted on August 5th of 2020. Um, I described it this way. <clears throat> since the claim and exercise, <clears throat> excuse me, since the claim and exercise of a constitutional right can not be converted into a crime, and that is a quote from a nine, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> a 1956 uh, federal case. So since the claim and exercise of a constitutional right cannot be converted into a crime, Every single executive order issued to restrict our movement, right? We were told we can go certain places and not others and all that other fun stuff. Um, thwart our opportunities to peacefully assemble, petition our government for redress of grievances, or impair our contracts is defunct, along with any statute purporting uh, to provide authority for those usurpations. So, um, in other words, um, we had orders that... Um, of course, you know, most of you, um, if not all of you, know what the governor's orders did in Michigan. They shut down businesses. Um, when they started to reopen some businesses, they left others closed. Or when they were more reopening fully, then they started um, only allowing certain businesses to open at 25 or 50% capacity, while others were allowed to fully reopen. Um, there were times where you supposedly um, weren't allowed to, you know, buy um, seeds to grow, you know, food in your garden, um, or you're, you weren't allowed to buy paint or repair supplies from Home Depot or Menards, things like that. Uh, you weren't allowed to mow your lawn. Uh, those are some of the crazy things that, um, the, um, executive orders were trying to do. Uh, real quick, I don't want to get too far off track, but I do see we have a good question from just a few moments ago on YouTube. Uh, asking, uh, does it give the, did the law that we're talking about give the governor, uh, it gave the governor power, but did they define emergency? And actually, um, the 1945 law did not, but the 1976 law does have uh, a definitions section, which if we don't go too long, we could talk about, but uh, that if you start with MCL, go to the Michigan legislature website, and if you do a basic MCL search, 
you can go to MCL 30.401. That is the beginning. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, 30.403 is where those powers are bestowed. I want to say it's 30.402. Uh, it's off the top of my head, so I could be wrong on that. <clears throat> that is the uh, section of the Michigan law that defines um, those kinds of terms for that specific purpose. Um, okay, so the governor's orders um, essentially changed everything about what we do. It, it talked about or restricted or denied our ability to um, go to worship services, to um, consult for the common good, to petition our government for a redress of grievances, to you know, go to work or school or all these other things, okay? So most of you already know that. The um, MDHHS executive orders did, um, well, they did exactly the same thing. In fact, um, one of them from October of 2020, um, of course, this one was issued, you know, very soon after the uh, Michigan Supreme Court making their decision in October of 2020. But in this uh, particular order, um, it goes on to um, make capacity limitations at gatherings, um, talking about how many people or if and when you can even gather indoors or outdoors, uh, in your own home or not. Um, restrictions on different types of facilities. That's where the different facilities were being treated differently depending on if you're a retail store, library, museum, restaurant, you name it. Um, it also made up other kinds of food service establishment um, uh, restrictions and organized sports restrictions. Uh, there were also face mask requirements and <clears throat> um, also doesn't get much uh, traction or, or um, you know, exposure in media. But one big part of these orders was also the contact tracing requirements. So they um, were requiring any kind of business to report your whereabouts to the government. Um, so contact tracing really um, started at the latter end of, of these orders, but nonetheless was included. Uh, and um, punishments, um, punishments for violating the executive orders. Um, there have been uh, punishments for violating any of these executive orders that Whitmer issued herself or emergency orders that uh, MDHHS has issued since then. Uh, and those um, punishments have um, jail time and fines, which we'll see in just a second. So anyway, I just wanna make sure that we've kind of talked about the different laws that are involved, uh, those three laws, what they each do, um, what the governor's executive orders did and what MDHHS directors uh, EOs did, and then the punishments for both. Hi, Bethany, nice to see you on our Facebook side. Um, so, and it looks like, did I screw that up? Oh yeah, we'll talk about the specific punishments later. So, all right, so let's look at the public health code. Now there's a lot of provisions in the public health code, tons. I mean, it's one of the biggest chunks of Michigan law on the books. Uh, and there's a ton of different things in there. It's not just a lot of wording for the same small things. No, there's a lot of different things going on in there and it's scary. In fact, I started trying to warn people in April of 2020 about the things that were happening 
um, in Kent County Circuit Court where these uh, warrants were being issued to pick up, arrest, detain, uh, observe, diagnose, and treat uh, people for COVID-19 if uh, any kind of official, a police officer or a health department official saw you on the street and just thought maybe you had COVID for some reason, they could actually do that. And, and the warrant would already be issued without even your name on it. They already had these blanket warrants that were issued. I've been warning people about the insanity of what's in the public health code since long before I even thought of writing the Restore Freedom Initiative petition. Um, and long before, you know, um, Stand Up Michigan started doing their uh, unlock one petition. Okay. So uh, looking at the public health code, the main elements to that, the, the two main parts that give the authority or power are in 333.2253 and 333.2453. We've done a lot of videos on these in the past. Um, so I'm just going to try to gloss over and give you the highlights. But 333.2253 is the part of the state law that gives MDHHS statewide authority to issue these EOs, whereas 2453 is the one that applies to the local health departments and purports to give them authority to issue executive or emergency orders. So what do those uh, two statutes do? Well, uh, they're very similar in uh, language, almost exactly the same. Uh, number one, they, they allow, supposedly, these EOs to prohibit the gathering of people for any purpose. Well, that seems a bit much. Um, two, they, in, they are there to ensure the continuation of essential public health services. Now, let me back up. Number one, let's not gloss over that. That is saying they could prohibit the gathering of people for any purpose, a state law, gives a government official to prohibit the gathering of people for any purpose. Gathering, I'm pretty sure that's somewhere in the Constitution. Um, okay, I'm being a smartass. But yes, uh, we have uh, that God-given liberty protected in both our state and U.S. constitutions. And that is something, no matter what state you're in, it's in your state constitution. Um, so that right off the bat's a no-go. Uh, to ensure the continuation of essential public health services. So it's talking about making sure that when you have an emergency arise, uh, that you still have uh, whatever public health services that had been offered, that those are still going to be available to people. So for example, uh, if there's, you know, a public health clinic that's doing cancer screenings, pap smears, mammograms, um, you know, to... Um, dialysis or whatever, that uh, any kind of service that might be provided prior to a public health emergency, that those services would be continuing uh, while this emergency is going on. Um, and then uh, the second part of that, though, is that those essential public health services are being continued. Uh, requiring people to wear masks is not a service. Um, requiring people to have a certain vaccine, well, I'm trying to, uh, anyway, you guys, I've done videos on that before, so I won't uh, try to get in timeout on certain social media platforms right now. You guys know what's in there though. And um, a service, the key thing, a service is something that is offered and that you can choose to accept it or not. So you can <clears throat> say, yep, I, I would like to use 
that stuff uh, or, you know, receive that medication or that mask or whatever, you know, do you have some for free that I could um, pick up from a government office, whatever. Um, that is acceptable under this language because it's a service. It's something that's being offered uh, doing the screenings, voluntary screenings. If people wanted to go in, that is a service. Um, it doesn't allow for mandates. Uh, and the third thing is to enforce um, public health laws, laws that are already on the books. And MCL 8.8 talks about what a law is in Michigan and what it's not. Um, and uh, of course, we've done whole videos on that too. But it's enforcing laws that are already on the books, not allowing new things to be created, uh, new restrictions uh, upon the people to be created through these EOs. So, um, again, if you want more details on all that, we go into much more detail in several prior videos. So please make sure to take a look on our Rumble and YouTube pages. And uh, we'll have our website reorganized fairly soon um, so that um, it'll be a little bit more intuitive on how to find different resources on different topics. But first, okay, so here we go. We are at the what the governor's executive orders did, which we talked about. Um, I knew I was going ahead of myself. Eh, whatever. Okay, here we are. So um, with those um, executive orders and emergency orders, this is a, a little picture I'd taken of one that I had on hand with my case files. Uh, this is the um, October, you guys can see it. It's, um, I think it, what does it say? October 29th, 2020, emergency order issued by the then acting director, Robert Gordon of the MDHHS. Uh, at the end of it, you can see that the, the bottom portion is, is implementation. You can see paragraph five talks about that if you violate this order, you can face imprisonment up to six months and a fine of $200. But then you can also have civil financial penalties, $1,000 for each violation or a day that a violation continues. So that's pretty steep. Um, and uh, so we're talking about significant financial penalties along with um, jail time. And of course, we know that there's um, other administrative regulations that they're doing to try to take away people's business licenses uh, to operate their businesses if they were supposedly not following. Okay, so, <clears throat> all right. So right now, I'm going to walk you through um, what some of those main cases are. Um, again, highlighting some of the main documents that are involved and, and that have been filed in those cases and give you access. So if you go to the description of the, um, it's in the middle, the wording is in the, the link is in the middle of the description of this video. You'll see um, a tiny URL link that will take you to a, um, see here. There we go. That'll take you to a PDF, a document online that looks like this. Let me see if I can make it a little bit easier for you guys to see. Okay, so um, this is the document that you'll be looking at. Um, I just called it important documents in the cases against Whitmer's EOs. Um, it starts with the date, the date that particular document was filed, who filed it, which court was it in, um, and the name of the document. Now, if you hover over each of these um, document names in blue with underlining, those in fact are direct links 
those will open up if you, you know, like right click, um, oops, sorry, if you left click, it'll take you right to the um, particular document that you just clicked on and you'll see it right th then and there. That is the actual document that was filed, as you can see right here, received by the Michigan Supreme Court, June 2nd, 2020. Um, <clears throat> those are the documents themselves. So you have access through this document here to all the other documents that we're going to talk about and more. Um, are they all the documents that were filed in those cases? No, if I did that, I would have lost you within three seconds. <clears throat> Hopefully you guys are still hanging on. <laughs> so, um, okay. So the three main cases involved are the, the first main one, it, which was first in many respects, not necessarily just when the first piece of paper was filed, but uh, it was the legislature's lawsuit against the governor. Uh, so that's the first case we're going to talk about. And then the Midwest Health case versus the governor. Midwest Health uh, versus governor of Michigan. That was filed in federal district court, uh, but then ended up being essentially moved over to the Michigan Supreme Court, if you will. I could bore you with all the details, but um, a big chunk of the decision-making process was sent from that federal district court judge over to the Michigan Supreme Court. And then um, I'm not sure when the actual case started, but this has been going on for quite some time. There's a restaurant called the Iron Pig. I believe it's in Otsego County. And uh, they have a lawsuit against MDHHS or Mi Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Um, so these are pertaining to the um, emergency orders issued under the, the um, public health code. And these other ones are um, uh, circulating around the uh, emergency orders, or excuse me, executive orders that were issued under the 1945 and 1976 acts for the governor. Okay, so, um, all right, so I'm gonna briefly talk about what these are. The very first one that we have is actually um, from May 22nd. And it was, again, this wasn't the very first document in the whole case, but it's the first main one that I wanted you guys to have access to. And that was their the legislature's brief. So it's their ask of the Supreme Court to allow the, the case to jump over the Court of Appeals. So essentially you had the, um, Court of Claims, which is the trial court in Michigan, that Court of Claims, um, it, it, Judge Cynthia Stevens, if I'm remembering correctly, um, <clears throat> anyway, you might remember watching the case in oral argument day, but anyway, um, she issued a pretty bad decision, and then the legislature appealed to the Michigan Court of Appeals. Uh, almost immediately upon filing it with the Michigan Court of Appeals, the Michigan legislature then filed a request with the Michigan Supreme Court to allow them to jump over the Michigan Court of Appeals and go straight to the Michigan Supreme Court to not waste anyone's time since this was a super important and timely case that needed to be decided. So, um, all right, so that's what that one is, and it talks about a lot of things. Now, here's the thing. The reason why I got involved is because, and I knew this was going to be the thing they argued before, but I certainly knew this once it was in the Court of Claims. The legislature's argument throughout that whole case was the governor can't do this because the legislature gets to do this. Only the legislature gets to make these kinds of uh, regulations upon the people and stop them from going to their um, churches or to school or to close their businesses or to not be able to buy paint or whatever. 
Um, only the legislature is allowed to do that. That was their argument. Now, I don't know about you, but I was really disturbed by that. I'm like, uh, yet yeah, no, no one is allowed to do that. It's not just that the governor did something that the legislature was only supposed to do. Sure, that's the procedural argument. But the governor, the legislature, nobody is supposed to be able to do this, which is why I don't really um, agree with, I really wonder why, let me put it this way, I really wonder why the people supporting the Unlock 2 petition are supporting it, because it's literally pushing for the continuation of these totally unconstitutional executive orders or emergency orders uh, to be issued. But anyway, that's another story. So... Uh, I filed on January, excuse me, June 2nd, I filed my first amicus brief in these cases with the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, the first document there is my motion to file um, the amicus brief telling the court why I would like to jump in on this. And then I filed my actual brief and the exhibits. Um, I apologize, I didn't realize this was cut off right here, but what it said is that I initially filed it on uh, June 2nd. And then uh, I subsequently, you know, had found that there were some typos and errors once I actually got a remotely full night's sleep. So I corrected those and filed it again on June 22nd, uh, just changing the typos, not actually, you know, doing anything to the substance. So that's available for you. Then on June 4th, the Michigan Supreme Court issued its order denying the legislature's request to be able to jump over the Court of Appeals. And there's some very important things that come out uh, in that. And I have it here. I just wanted to... Oh. Well, I did have it here. Okay, not sure what happened to that, but there's some very good stuff that's in there. Uh, in the dissents. So in the dissenting opinions, um, if, I if, I, if I recall correctly, Justice Bernstein dissented and Justice Viviano dissented, I believe Justice Markman and, yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, at any rate, um, Zara. Anyway, there's some big dissents there and they talked about the individual liberties that were being trampled upon and why it was so important for the Supreme Court to allow the case to jump over the Court of Appeals and just get right to it because this literally affected all 10 million people in Michigan and beyond. Anybody who has an interest in property or anything that's in Michigan, they were being impacted. Um, and so the, um, I apologize, I have construction happening right outside my office window, but uh, hopefully that won't be too distracting to you guys. So that's what happened on June 4th. <laughs> They're drilling right into the wall, so we'll see. Okay, so June 19th, two weeks later, the governor filed, um, hold on. Lori, do you mind uh, letting me know if this is gonna be a problem? I just wanna make sure before I lose anybody, otherwise I'll have to figure out something else. Well, I'm gonna keep talking, Lori, just jump on there and tell me if I'm gonna to have to do something about it, but I don't know what I would do. Okay, good, you can still hear me. So I apologize for any of the background information or background noises that we have from the construction. But um, anyway, so June 19th, the governor finally uh, submits their her brief, uh, arguing, of course, in defense of those statutes and of the orders. Uh, and then 
June 25th, I filed my motion uh, to introduce an amicus brief as well as my amicus brief at the Court of Appeals level. So again, pay attention to that um, different uh, court being involved here. It's the same case, but it was kind of trying to leapfrog and then it was sent back down. And then so um, anyway, the um, the next thing to be um, um Included in here was on July 20th, where the Michigan Court of Appeals issued an order accepting amicus briefs. So for whatever that's worth, that's just something small, but I put that in there um, and uh, accepting mine. Um, and then October 12th was when there was an order um, issued that was granting peremptory reversal of the Court of Appeals um, so that's the Supreme Court. And if in case you're wondering like, whoa, what the heck happened in between? That's because this October 12th order actually stems from what was happening in the second case we're going to talk about. But there was a motion made in this case to essentially close that case out and officialize everything. So um, anyway, that is uh, those are all the documents I'd like you to have and take a look at uh, on that case. So Jumping over to that case that was filed by, I want to say, three or four doctors and a patient who had been denied care because of these stupid executive orders um, that was filed in federal district court. Uh, once the case was kicked back to the Michigan Supreme Court, that's when I got involved. Uh, on July 21st, the plaintiffs in, those, in that case, they filed their brief, their first brief to the Michigan Supreme Court directly. I filed next. I was the um, on August 5th. So my, my motion, my brief, so my motion is where I'm asking to participate in the case, even though I'm not a named party. My brief, you know, is my arguments. Uh, and briefs are never brief, so I'm not sure why it has that name. And then all the exhibits that I included. A whole week later, we had, all oh, the next thing was the order granting me uh, oral argument time, along with, I believe, two other amicus parties at the time. Uh, August 27th, there was um, an amended notice and schedule of oral argument. Again, this is some of it goes to the substance of what happened, and some of it is just to give you that procedural picture of what was going on. Uh, so that shows, um, you know, when it was originally scheduled to be argued on September 2nd, it was moved to September 9th. Um, on September 2nd, there was an order granting the legislature oral argument time as well. And on uh, the same day, there was an order that issued um, regarding the, the order and the length of the oral argument. So I argued, I don't remember now, second, I, I think. I argued second in the whole case. Uh, and then um, the legislature was given five minutes of oral argument time. I was given five minutes. Um, and the other amicus party was given five minutes. So anyway. Uh, then on the 9th, when we actually had the oral arguments, at the end of the day, so the oral arguments took, I want to say like four hours or something like that. And at the end of the day, uh, right around, say, five o'clock-ish, the court issued this order directing all the parties to file supplemental briefs answering additional questions. So we had exactly one week to do that. The questions that we were asked to um, address were, um, they're on page four of the brief, um, 
Well, let's see, supplemental brief right there. If you click on that, you'll see what the exact questions are. But they were talking about um, whether the emergency order, whether the EPGA applies in the context of public health generally or to an epidemic such as COVID-19 in particular, and whether public safety, as that term is used in the EPGA, is a term of ordinary meaning, or if it developed a specialized legal meaning as an object of the state's police power, and whether public safety encompasses public health events such as epidemics. So it was very nuanced, but there is some good information in there that would be very um, helpful. So let me see here. I'm gonna, well, no, you guys really need to see that. So let me see if I can make it just a slight bit smaller. Okay. So um, I didn't include everybody's briefs. Um, I put mine in there though. And then October 2nd, uh, that was the day that the Supreme Court came out and then issued its um, massive order and um, declared the EPGA unconstitutional. So before I gloss over that, because this is kind of the big, uh, talking about, you know, a big part of things here. Um, I wanted to share with you some of the things that I had argued uh, in the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, so I'm just going to share this from the um, brief that I filed uh, in the Supreme Court on August 5th, 2020. So, um, okay. These are just some things to think about, okay? Some of these things were not picked up on by the court, but I think nonetheless are extremely important. So I quoted a part from a... Um, 1865, 1865 Michigan Supreme Court case, Twitchell v. Blodgett. It can never be wise or expedient for the judiciary, however pressing the exigency may appear, to disregard the plain principles of the organic law, they're talking about the Constitution, which the people in their sovereign capacity have seen fit to adopt as the great landmarks for the ascertainment and security of public and private rights. So a lot of words to say, um, it's never going to be wise for the court to, even in emergencies, disregard the plain language of the constitution when the people drafted it to protect our rights. The duty therefore of the courts of final resort, so uh, any appeals courts, the duty is to declare an act of the legislature unconstitutional and void when it plainly conflicts with the constitution, that duty is clear and imperative. So the court's supposed to, um, they have a duty to declare unconstitutional laws unconstitutional. I specifically asked, and you can see this on page eight, I specifically asked for the court to, the Michigan Supreme Court to immediately declare the unconstitutional acts of our government void. That included, uh, but was not necessarily limited to, the entirety of the EPGA and the EMA and the governor's 2020 EOs that had anything to do with um, COVID. So most of you already know this, but let's kind of uh, highlight an important uh, statement out of a case that references really um, Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. Any law repugnant to the Constitution is void. Most of you already know this. 
And that, of course, is the 1803 uh, U.S. Supreme Court case from Marbury versus Madison. So when the case was being decided, when the arguments are being presented by the legislature, and in a lot of respects, even the plaintiffs in this case, they argued that the legislature and the plaintiffs both argued that the governor's EOs were totally fine, legal and constitutional for the first, whatever it was, um, 50 something days, that there was the initial 28 days and then there was that extension to April 30th. And so uh, that though that initial chunk of time, those executive orders were issued, the governor was doing that totally constitutionally and legally. That was her argument. I argued that day in the Michigan Supreme Court. I really hope you guys can't hear that drilling as much as I can because it is three feet from me on the other side of the wall. I argued that those orders were illegal, but they were they were illegal as of um, May 1st, but they were unconstitutional from day one. And to me, it's obvious. You have to look at the language of our constitution, but the legislature and the courts, the lower courts and the Supreme Court and the oral argument, all the attorneys and all the other parties, all of them, were all arguing about who has this power and is the, you know, under what circumstances is the legislature allowed to give that power to the governor to issue essentially new laws, have new restrictions enforced as a law upon the people? The answer is none, never. But in order to show the court that, I wanted to point out one of the things that I was arguing. In our zeal to eloquently describe the complex jurisprudence that culminates in the applicable standard of review, right? In, in our arguing as attorneys and, and judges to you know, be eloquent and uh, describe all the cases that lead us to how we have to handle this particular case now, that case precedent, uh, and so in describing all that and trying to be all fancy about it, we often forget that the interpretation, although the interpretation and application, this is a quote, although the interpretation and application of the pertinent provisions of our Constitution is the Michigan Supreme Court's most solemn responsibility, not my words, that came from the Michigan Supreme Court in the 2018 case, a plain reading of the Constitution text itself provides the answer without much debate or interpretation. Really, no debate or interpretation. Why do you need to interpret something if it's already understood? Let me put it this way. If um, I go to Spain and uh, I don't really remember much of my Spanish at all, but if I go uh, into um, a restaurant and I'm trying to place an order and um, the person at the counter, of course, is from Spain and uh, they, um, you know, they're trying to tell me what the specials are and everything like that. If they're telling me in English or there's something where there's a picture and I can clearly see I can choose from pepperoni pizza or a cheeseburger or a ham sandwich. I can see that or they are telling me in English. Either way, I don't need a translator, especially if it's in English, right? They can explain all of it and it's in English. I don't need someone to translate it. If they're telling me in Spanish or French or German or another language I just don't understand, then I need a translator, then I need an interpreter. But if I understand the language that is being spoken to me, 
If I understand the language as it's written on the menu, why would I need an interpreter? I don't. There's no interpretation needed. I just need to read the menu. Well, when the court is making a decision about something, they need to look at the facts of the case, then they need to go to whatever law is involved, and it always starts with the Constitution. And if the wording of the Constitution is clear, there's no interpretation that's even allowed. It's not necessary and it's not allowed. They just need to read it as though they're reading the menu to decide what to put for lunch. So, um, I then point out from, um, this is from that Twitchell v. Blodgett case, Michigan Supreme Court, 1865. While men may not always agree in their opinions, there can be but one true meaning to any constitutional provision. One true meaning to the Constitution. Not this wishy-washy, it means this one minute and that another minute. Oh, the Democrats are in power, so it means this today. And when the Republicans win office, it means that tomorrow. No. One, one true meaning, regardless of any of the other garbage that we bring into that. And what I found uh, really interesting is that in the uh, 2018 uh, Michigan Supreme Court case, Citizens Protecting Michigan's Constitution versus the Secretary of State, they're talking about, um, the opinion was talking about how uh, one particular justice was making this argument based on all this precedent, all this case law, that was bad. It was bad law. And uh, law, in air quotes there, uh, for those of you just listening and not watching. So <clears throat> the um, they were talking about following the, the case precedent instead of actually looking at the text of the Constitution to, sh to see what it says. And this is what they wrote. It is bad to depart from the plain language of our Constitution on the basis of a judicial gloss that is binding precedent. And then they continue to talk about how it's really um, this judicial gloss, this binding precedent, all this fluff and, and discussion about something that doesn't need any interpretation. It's basically like a spray on tan. Their words, not mine. Michigan Supreme Court actually said that. This case law that they use to complicate really simple things uh, like separation of powers um, is like a spray on tan. So... I then argued to the Michigan Supreme Court that separation of powers isn't just some term of art. It's not some um, doctrine as the um, director, MDHHS director and the governor have publicly talked about from uh, basically since day one, that the separation of powers is some doctrine and it's some made up philosophy that the court can modify when it's needed. No, it's not. Um, it's certainly not even at the federal level, but at the state level, and this is where I don't care what state you're in, I want you to go pull out your state constitution. I know for a fact where it is in the Michigan constitution, Article 3, Section 2, Florida state constitution, Article 2, Section 3, it literally says separation of powers, okay? So it says <laughs> there is a separation of powers. I'm going to Click because of my technical issues. I have to um, open another. Of course, it's not going to function properly. 
I'm going to go over to my other screen. Okay. So this is the actual wording from the Michigan State Constitution, Article 3, Section 2. Separation of powers of government. The powers of government are divided into three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. No person exercising powers of one branch shall exercise the powers belonging to another branch, except as expressly provided in this constitution. And the Florida um, state constitution has almost uh, verbatim the exact same language. So that's pretty darn clear. When, when the words separation of powers literally appear in the constitution, what interpretation is needed? Well, unfortunately, that case, uh, that opinion that came out on October 2nd, 2020, went into a bunch of detail about all the, the analysis of prior cases, um, uh, uh, you know, whether it be federal or um, state. In fact, they, they talked about, well, we're, we're really bound by what the U.S. Supreme Court does when it talks about the separation of powers. Uh, that applies the exact same way here in Michigan. First of all, no, it doesn't because the Michigan uh, Constitution goes beyond that quite a bit and literally says separation of powers. Where the U.S. Constitution has that clear implication, there is literally zero room for interpretation in the Michigan State Constitution. And none of them picked up on that, even after I argued it, put it in my briefs, you name it. They thought, no, no, that can't be, no. So um, getting back to the court's decision, Essentially, what they did is they took a cheater's way out, okay? So they said, um, and Lori, I'm going to take a brief pause and say, Lori, if you see something, I see there's a lot of different comments. If there are any comments or questions you think that I did not answer or address yet that I need to, please uh, maybe just throw it in the private chat so I can um, make sure I'm catching that and handling that as, as appropriate. But um Okay, so the, I have to round this out, but this case, this October 2nd, 2020 decision from the Michigan Supreme Court clearly said, given that we conclude that the governor did not possess the authority under the EMA to renew her declaration of state of emergency or state of disaster based on the COVID-19 pandemic after April 30th, 2020. In other words, because we're saying she broke the law the actual statute itself, she didn't follow it after April 30th, it is unnecessary for us to decide whether that very statute violates the Michigan Constitution, which was a question certified to the Michigan Supreme Court by the Federal District Court. They are purposely, purposely saying, we're not going to talk about the EMA and whether it's constitutional. We're not saying it is, but we're not saying it's not. Nor are we addressing any other statutes. Okay, so that's what they did and unequivocally declared that the um, 1945 Emergency Powers of Governor Act was unconstitutional without any doubt. So um, let me jump over here then. Um, okay, so what happens? Those of you who live in Michigan or pay attention to what's going on in Michigan probably know that at that point, our governor went on... Um, bunch of lives on social media, on news outlets, whatever, and immediately talked about this case and said, oh, the court didn't say I violated any law. The court didn't say I did anything wrong. Um, and in fact, she told everyone that her orders remain in effect for 28 days. 
oh, my orders are good for 28 days. They're totally fine. You have to follow them. You have to follow them. She told people that all weekend long. Now, what she didn't tell you was that she was doing two things by Monday morning. By that Monday morning, October 5th, there was a new emergency order issued by Robert Gordon. The um, At the time, he was the MDHHS director. And number two, she had filed a request, a motion in the Michigan Supreme Court to put pause on their order, declaring the statute unconstitutional so that she could continue having her in, uh, illegal and unconstitutional orders in place for at least 21 days. Uh, she totally misused a court rule to try to stretch that argument. And quite frankly, the attorneys arguing that should have been sanctioned, talking about attorneys that are getting sanctioned for all kinds of things that they should have been. But um, anyway, so their motion for that is right here, uh, which might be the first time you guys have ever had real access to that. Uh, the plaintiff, Midwest Institute of Health, they filed their response to that motion uh, the very next day. The Michigan legislature filed their response the very next day. Now, what I will say is that those two responses actually were very, very short, uh, but they were very... Um, they were good. I mean, they were good. Don't get me wrong, but they each kind of missed one big thing I felt. So I worked all that week and uh, filed my response on October 9th. Uh, and then also on October 9th, even the Michigan attorney general issued a response. They're generally on the same side, right? No, the attorney general issued a response saying, no, the governor's got it wrong here. Those orders don't get to be enforced anymore. So, hey, perhaps to you, AG, you actually did good by the people there. So um, what happened in that? So, yeah, so this is my uh, my brief in that um, situation it was 10 pages double spaced. All right, people. So that's five pages of material. Uh, so you guys can totally read that when one page, the beginning page really doesn't have much on it. Okay. So what I wanted to do is share with you some of the main things. So this is <laughs> as soon as, uh, like I said, she started these press conferences that Friday talking about what the Supreme Court did when she wasn't being honest at all. She told people, quote, the ruling does not mean that the orders I issued violated the law. She really told them that. Um, and that's even from, oh, she did it on, that was Facebook that she did um, October 5th. Okay. But um, the funny thing is they literally said the governor did not possess the authority under the EMA to renew her declaration of a state of emergency or state of disaster based on the pandemic after April 30th. They literally said that. And by the way, they later came out and, and spelled out in um, an order on October 12th, the executive orders issued under the EPGA are of no continuing legal effect, none whatsoever, because she violated the law um, after April 30th, that particular law. Okay, so what I then shared was that um, even more concerning is that, this is a quote, the governor and director seek to ensure that some responsive measures can be placed under alternative executive authority all the crap they were doing, all their mandates, they literally said, we want to make sure, we want the court's blessing to make sure there's time for us to go ahead and put all those restrictions under uh, an order from a different statute. 
And that's they put that in their motion for immediate consideration. Now, that particular document I didn't include here, but it was a document they filed um, hand in hand with that other the motion for the 28 days. Um, in fact, the governor told us on social media, and this is a quote, the court held the law was unconstitutional, but that ruling doesn't mean all the protections we have will go away. I have additional powers that I will use to protect our families from the virus. Namely, the Department of Health and Human Services will issue epidemic orders to maintain our statewide mask mandate and limitation on gatherings. She literally told us that's what she was going to do. And I said to the court, listen, she doesn't need the extra time. But by the way, we need to do something about this now because she's going to try to just jump around this and use these other um, statutes. So. Let me see. So at the very end, it makes it clear what I was arguing for. I urged the court to not only deny her motion, but to do everything else that they needed to do that made her actions comply with the restrictions upon her that are found in the Constitution. She can't go using any old statute uh, that she wants that does the same unconstitutional crap because Marbury versus Madison reminds us that any law repugnant to the Constitution is void right off the bat. So um, then you see on October 12th, there was a motion, uh, excuse me, an order from the court that denied her motion. Um, okay, so then fast forward over a year to the point where another case is hitting the um, Michigan Supreme Court talking about none other than the public health orders that I uh, talked about in, um, let's see here, there we go. The public health orders that I was trying to tell the court that I told them point blank she was going to use to do the exact same thing. So, um, the Michigan Supreme Court and Court of Appeals, if you want to look at what documents were filed in this case, in either of those, if you follow this link here, it'll take you to, to see what documents were filed, but unfortunately you can't access any of the documents that way. Totally stupid, I know. But I put um, most of the documents uh, right here uh, on this, um, PDF so you can click and find the links that way. So January 15th of this year, a 46th Circuit Court judge issued an opinion and order that struck down MCL 333.2253 and I think um, also 2453, the provisions that we talked about at the beginning that give the health department the right to issue EOs, uh, supposedly gives them the right, right? They don't actually have rights, but um, Anyway, gives them that supposed power or authority to issue those EOs. Uh, that decision struck down both of those statutes, said they're totally unconstitutional. Of course, that really upset poor little governor and the MDHHS director and the AG's office. So they filed, the MDHHS filed on um, February 3rd of this year, two months ago, uh, an, an appeals brief with the Michigan Court of Appeals. 
The very next day, they filed a bypass application with the Michigan Supreme Court, essentially what was tried in 2020, saying, hey, listen, we got this case. <clears throat> it's now in front of the Court of Appeals, but we think this is so huge. It's so important that the Michigan Supreme Court needs to jump in and tackle this issue now instead of um, waiting for it to go through the Court of Appeals. I mean, this whole process could take years. And that was actually written in uh, the dissent by Justice Viviano and Justice Bernstein together, if you can uh, imagine that. Um, they pointed that out. This process could take years. Okay, so uh, a week later, on the 11th of February, the that trial court judge issued an order denying the MDHHS um, their, their motion that they asked for that order to be put on pause. What is it with the executive branch here in Michigan that as soon as the court tells them you're doing something bad, it's unconstitutional, no, stop, that those very parties uh, will go to the court and say, oh, well, but can you just hit pause because we really want to keep using these orders to control the people. That's exactly what MDHHS asked the trial court judge to do, and the trial court judge on um, February 11th said, ah, no, I'm going to deny your request to stay my other order. Um, my ruling stands, that statute is unconstitutional, all those EOs are no good. Okay, so then on the 4th of last month, MDHHS filed a supplemental authority brief with the Michigan uh, Supreme Court. I jumped over that um, on the 22nd of February, the Michigan legislature actually tried to join uh, the request in the Michigan Supreme Court to take the case, and they filed an amicus brief. Again, they're not named parties to this, but they filed an amicus brief. Um, and so back on track, um, after the MD MDHHS supplemental authority brief, where there's cases that have been continuing to go on, where all kinds of bad things are happening. Well, MDHHS pulled those out and said, hey, Supreme Court, look at all that's happened. Look, this is now, you know, you should use this as precedent to, to make sure our orders stay in place. You really want to look at that supplemental authority brief, by the way. I mean, really look at what how they're describing those cases. Um, anyway, on March 7th of last month, the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, which is based out of Midland, Michigan, where I lived, uh, where my dad and stepmom are, um, they filed an amicus, an amicus, an amicus motion and brief uh, to uh, participate at the Supreme Court. And unfortunately, what happened on uh, Friday? Well, let me go back to go back to this. All right. So on Friday, if you can see it, um, it's not cooperating the best with me. So on Friday, order denying bypass and a very simplistic, overly simplistic order from the Michigan Supreme Court. It's all of uh, two sentences. They denied the request to allow the case to leapfrog over the Court of Appeals because it is the court is not persuaded that the questions presented should be reviewed by this court before consideration by the Court of Appeals. What? So what questions are being asked? Well, like I said, this is about the, um, the EOs by MDHHS. So this is all about whether the public health code is um, the same unconstitutional issue as what happened with the EPGA and the EMA. Okay, so 
Um, oh, let's see here. Um, I think I got to go back to my, there we go. Okay. And I got to take myself off. Give me a second here. All right. So, so that's where we're at now. Okay. So we talked about all those documents and, uh, the three cases. Again, this is just recap. Those are the three cases that we just went over. The one that's most recent or has most recent things happening is uh, Iron Pig versus MDHHS. Um, we went over all those documents. They're there for you to look at. I want you to look at them. At the very least, kind of click and open all of them and just glance and see if something jumps out at you. But especially the shorter ones, just go ahead and read them. Some of them are only one page. Uh, then, um, and that link is right here on the screen right now. So if you um, didn't see it somehow, it got buried in the description of this video, uh, you can put in that uh, tiny URL and that'll bring you to it. Um, so let's kind of recap what the court should be doing, okay? What these three laws did and do and how these executive orders function and these emergency orders function, because I have a big question for you, big question, super important, need your help on um, when I tell you this part here, okay? And I haven't gone through all the briefs that have been filed, but what I can tell you is that there's very something very peculiar. So I'm going to go actually back over to this one real quick and um, show you. Oh, it's reloading. Wonderful. Love when that happens. Oh, come on. Really? Ah. <sighs> All right, if you go to that link though, um, that's on that other document, you'll find this. This is the link that I gave you. Okay, so you can see here that Court of Appeals, this is what has been filed at the Court of Appeals level. This in blue is what is filed at the Supreme Court level, okay? Oops, sorry, those are parties. You have to go down to the, there we go. You gotta go down here. That's the things that have happened, things that were filed. So things that are in green are what happened at the Court of Appeals. Things that are in blue are the Michigan Supreme Court. Oh, okay. There was something that just happened yesterday that I didn't see. Um, but you could see that the... Oh, that's very interesting. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah, and it says 331, but that was actually... It's got April 1st on the top of the order. So I'm not sure what kind of shenanigans they're doing here. But anyway, so uh, unfortunately, you can't click on these documents to get them. But that's why I put some of them in that um, other PDF for you to be able to have those clickable links. So looking here, there are um, really four parties involved. So you have the... Um, the Iron Pig Smokehouse, that they're listed as parties one and two because it's their DBA is, is party number two. Um, then you have MDHHS. Then you have the Michigan Legislature. They're listed as an amicus. And then the Mackinac Center is listed as a, an amicus, okay? Um, but if you look at what's been filed, all of these documents here, nothing was ever filed by the plaintiff, the restaurant, Iron Pig, in this case. Nothing. Nothing was filed in the Court of Appeals on this case by the plaintiff. 
The only briefs arguing against what the um, governor or MDHHS was asking for are uh, this right here and this one right here. And I've included those for you. That was it. So, and then you have right here, the shows that, oh, excuse me, this one right here. Um, that was the last main thing that was done by the court. Actually, it was the last thing done by the Supreme Court. They said, no, we're not going to let you hear, you know, have this case heard now in the Michigan Supreme Court. You got to jump back down to the Michigan Court of Appeals and have the whole case, um, you know, litigated through that way. Um, like I said, Justice Viviano and Bernstein pointed out there's some significant things. I'd love to read you that order. It's it's very short, but um, their, their dissents uh, are really great and uh, definitely something you should take a look at. So, but look at what's happening here. Court of Appeals, this is it. This is all that any party has submitted to the actual Court of Appeals. Now, what this will show you is that their brief, their application for leave to appeal was filed in the Court of Appeals um, on the 2nd, and it was served on the um, plaintiffs on the 3rd of February, and the answer was due on the 24th, and there's nothing, nothing from the plaintiff in the Court of Appeals either, nothing from any amicus or anyone else. No other briefs have been filed in the Court of Appeals. In fact, the only thing that was done was that there was a transcript reminder request. Uh, of course, it's not going to just describe that. Basically, if there's anything uh, done at a lower level, if there's oral argument done, you have to, when you appeal, you have to request the transcripts and provide the transcripts to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court so they could see what was actually done in those hearings. Uh, and apparently the MDHHS attorney didn't provide the transcripts yet. So, very interesting. Keep that in mind, because that goes to my question I have for you. Okay, so um, the um, all of these EOs, though, all of them, the governors, the MDHHS directors under the EPGA, EMA, uh, the public health code, you name it, all of them are unconstitutional. Why do I say that? They all violate the separation of powers. I have those constitutional provisions right in here for you. Uh, very clearly, they are exercising the powers of the legislative branch to, you know, issue regulations for the people and create these laws. I'm using air quotes and I realize you can't see me. They're doing that and uh, they don't have the power to do legislative things. They can only do executive branch things. That's what Article 3, Section 2 of the Michigan State Constitution says, literally verbatim. Due process. They're violating the, the elements of and requirements of due process. Article 1, Section 17 of the Michigan State Constitution, um, every state constitution has due process, but also uh, the Fifth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution uh, require that there's due process before a life, liberty, or property can be taken away. Well, why do I say that due process has been violated? Well, there's so many ways. Well, let's look at the fact that these are supposedly laws that are enforceable by law. They say, all these orders say they're enforceable by law, uh, just like any kind of other criminal law. You can get jail time, you can pay fines, you can have civil penalties, all that stuff. This is, can cost you thousands of dollars. And this is the stuff that the Iron Pig restaurant was fighting. Uh, look at the Michigan Constitution, Article 4, Section 22. Legislation has to be enacted by a bill, not an EO. 
So they're violating that part of the state constitution. Section 25, you can't amend a state law without reprinting the entirety of that state law in your new law, in your in the bill to amend that law. Well, none of these EOs uh, copied and pasted the parts of the statutes that they were trying to change. In fact, oh, shoot. In case you're wondering what parts of statutes they were trying to change, um, I did have that um, kind of laid out for you guys. Give me a second here. Um, man, I had some really good stuff I wanted to share with you, but just don't have the time. <sighs> well, okay, I can't find where I put it in here, but she was trying to change um, the fire code and um, the um, uh, Open Meetings Act and the Freedom of Information Act and, you know, all kinds of licensing acts. The governor and MDHHS were trying to change many different laws that are on the books saying you could run government meetings this way or you can do, you know, you have new restrictions upon you based on this. OK, so anyway, that is um, that's just some of the stuff because I, I don't have my my note in there that I have all the specifics. But if you want to know the specifics, I have it in, in those briefs that are available to you now. Um, but they, she never did that. So um, our article uh, four, section 27, all laws must wait 90 days before they become effective unless a supermajority of state legislators vote to give it immediate effect. Well, obviously we know that the state legislature has not even been allowed to vote on these EOs before they're put into effect, but the governor and MDHHS director would make them effective usually immediately. Otherwise they might set them for a couple days out. Certainly not 90 days. Uh, section 23, the style, it might sound stupid, but it's in the state constitution. All laws have to have the style, and this is a quote right out of our state constitution, that the uh, they must start, the people of the state of Michigan enact, and then blah, 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 blah. You fill in the blank, right? She didn't do that because the people weren't doing anything. She was trying to control the people. Uh, state constitution, article four, section 24, no law shall embrace more than one subject. Yet her EOs and the MDHHS director EOs, all of these EOs talked about never just one subject or two or three. They talked about 10 or 15. I mean, shutting down um, stores or putting restrictions on visiting your loved ones in hospitals or nursing homes or, um, you know, talking about whether you're allowed to go to church or school or any of the, you have to wear a face mask. All of these things talking about totally uh, I mean, changing when driver's license registrations would be due and, you know, how court cases could be filed, and all kinds of stuff was being changed. Um, definitely more than one subject in each of these. And not to mention, due process is involved because there's significant property deprivation and jail time, which, you know, we kind of already talked about, but I'll, I'll briefly circle back to that. So, um, but how else are they unconstitutional? Well, they impair contracts, which we've talked about in detail, but I'm just reiterating that here. They violate equal protection. Certain restaurants or businesses were allowed to be open while others were not. Certain ones had uh, gathering restrictions, capacity limitations, and uh, others did not. 
there were limitations, obviously, on assembly, consultation, instruction, and your right to petition your government for redress of grievances. Uh, quite frankly, the 1976 um, uh, Public Health Code, MCL 333.2253 and 224. Uh, 2453 specifically come out and say, like we talked about earlier, that you can, they can restrict through these EOs, uh, the gathering of people for any purpose, yet we have the right to peacefully assemble. So that's obviously a due process violation. Um, our freedom to worship was impacted. Uh, the searches and seizures, we had a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures uh, and uh, searches and seizures without warrants. Um, unenumerated rights and powers inherent in the people. There's, we have all the rights that God gave us, not just the ones that are written into the constitution to be protected by government. Uh, and so by issuing these EOs, all, so many of those unenumerated rights were being infringed upon. So what does that really mean? What, you know, what, what do we really need to take away about our rights? Well, our rights are meant to be exercised undiminished. And the parts of the Constitution that talk about that are in here. Unrestrained. Again, if you're just listening, go back to the video and look at the slides when I share them on Thursday. Um, this is, it gives you the exact parts of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, you know, the state Constitution, whatever, that explain where these terms are coming from. But our rights are meant to be exercised undiminished, unrestrained, unabridged, Uninfringed, unviolated, undenied, undeprived, unabused, and unusurped. So, um, with that being said, I want to um, bring us back to the what is happening now. So, uh, what is happening now? Well, like I mentioned a few moments ago, Nothing has been filed in the Court of Appeals case. Nothing except for the initial brief. What do you think should happen now? Now, procedurally at this stage, the Court of Appeals could do um, one of three things, I guess. Maybe four, depending on how you look at it. Number one, they could say, okay, we're going to... Uh, look at the request to take this on and and take this appeal on by MDHHS. Uh, and we're going to tell them, no, we're just not taking the case on. We don't think it's a good time to do that and really not do much of anything with it. Um, number two, they could just come right out and deny the request and say, but give reasons for it. We're denying this because the Michigan Supreme Court already declared the executive branch isn't allowed to use EOs to regulate the people. So um, it could do that. Two forms of denial, but with totally different effects. Um, the third thing they could do is say, you know, based on what's been submitted so far, so just the, the MDHHS brief, we think that... Um, uh, the, the lower court, the circuit court judge got it wrong and the public health code and the EOs based on that, they're totally good to go. Uh, so uh, we're going to reinstate all these EOs. They could do that. Or they could say, all right, we're going to grant the application to bring it to the court. And so now we're going to direct the parties to um, file full briefs 
and we'll set an oral argument schedule. That could happen. Huh. So we don't know which way the Court of Appeals is going to take this, but I've seen a lot of bad things coming out of the Court of Appeals in Michigan recently. So um, my question for you is, do you think that I should get involved as an amicus? Do you think that I should file a brief in the case, which is currently back in front of the Michigan Court of Appeals, so I can lay all this out, the very stuff that I knew the governor was going to do through MDHHS back in October of 2020? Should I bring this information and these arguments in front of the Michigan Court of Appeals? Should I get involved? That is my question for you. So in order to keep this organized, here's what I'm going to do. Um, hopefully at some point today, but at least by tomorrow before noon. I will be posting on all of our social media and our website a poll. Um, I'll just make it a Google survey so all the answers are in the same place. And I want you to answer. If you think, yes, I should get involved and file a brief, it's going to consume hours and hours and hours of my time and energy. And there's hundreds of dollars that could be involved uh, depending on the situation uh, and what might be needed. But should I get involved? Or do you think, nope, I think uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Or I think the plaintiff will figure out what they need to do. Or I think other amicus parties will file at the court of appeals level, just like they did at the Michigan Supreme Court level. I think it's covered. I want to know what you guys think, because I feel torn about this. I feel in one way that I'm being called to participate in this way, but I also feel like there's so much else I need to be doing and I can't do everything. So I can't take everything on. So if you would please do me that favor, keep looking out for this poll to be released. I just couldn't get it drafted and, and ready to go before we went live today, especially with all the technical difficulties. So please uh, answer that poll. It'll be like one or two questions. It'll be super easy. Um, and we'll be sharing it on social media sometime within uh, less than 24 hours. Um, so it's already been more than an hour and a half of your time. I thank you all for jumping on uh, that have been here. And um, I um, appreciate all the comments and questions and everything. Um, so please make sure to check out those resources. And of course, we'll have more resources available specifically pointed out on Friday on our Freedom Fighting Tools Day. But uh, again, thank you so much for everything, all the support, and uh, I wish you a wonderful and fabulous afternoon. Thanks, guys.